Well, good morning. A little bit fuller room here, second service than first service this morning. But we gave free coffee and hot chocolate to everybody in the first service. Just kidding, we didn't. They deserved it, though. You do, too. Thanks for being here this morning. Pastor Bob actually came down with a a stomach bug uh, this weekend, Um, so we need to pray for him this morning. I think he's on the mend, Um, but he asked me to to step in this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to save the portion that he had prepared for. He had that that message ready to go, and really it's a passion to him, the calling of uh, leaders and assembling a team. So we're going to look at that in the weeks ahead. We'll be in Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17 this morning. Hey, we have a, um, in a couple weeks, we have a, a great women's event. I know many of you ladies have already signed up. I just want to highlight it again this morning because it's rapidly filling up the Uplift event um, in two weeks. And I wouldn't hesitate. It's, it's going to fill to capacity. So please uh, take advantage of this morning. If that's been on your heart, we really would like to see you there. And also, guys, I want to extend an invitation to you. We have a, a very busy weekend of ministry that weekend to set up for that event, to clean up for it, and to get set up for events that are taking place on Sunday really requires requires an army of volunteers to do that. If that's something you want to throw your hat in the ring to help out with, you could see the um, hosts out at the registration table, uh, table today right after this service and give them your name and contact information. And Lisa Meredith, who is leading that event, We'll have some of her team talk to you about how you can help. That'd be great, either setting up or breaking down. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, what an honor it is to be in your presence. Father, we thank you for your provision. On a morning like this, Lord, we're reminded of things that we take for granted so often. Father, the fact that we could be in this nice, warm, safe building. Lord, the fact that the power's on. Um, that there weren't trees blowing down last night that took it out, or all those things, God, that uh, we take for granted every day. We thank you for breath this morning, Lord. We thank you for soundness of mind. And Lord, I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon us. God, what a blessing it is to be in your sanctuary, Lord, worshiping you. We ask that you take the offering of our worship before you, Lord, humbly we offer it. And Lord, we ask that you'd open our hearts to hear from your word this morning. God, we pray for Pastor Bob, pray for healing for him, recovery, restoration, Lord, and for others who are ill, others that are suffering from disease, Lord. Those that are here this morning that are heavy laden with with worry and burdens, Lord, that only you can lift. God, we pray that you would do your ministry here and that you'd be glorified. So open our hearts to hear from you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, over the last couple weeks, we had a couple um, meetings with our ushering team, and we talked about the roles of ushers to, uh, really their job is to maintain a sanctuary for worship so that you can come in and be undistracted in your worship and the study of God's word. And we talked about a lot of different scenarios that we might encounter during a worship service and how we could best maintain that sanctuary for worship. And then I was preparing this morning and I said, man, this is one situation that we didn't prepare for. What if in the middle of our service, somebody rips a giant hole in the roof and lowers a paralytic man down right into the midst of our sanctuary? 
We did not cover that in our ushers meeting, and I am remiss in not doing so. Well, this morning we're going to see how our Lord handles just such a situation. One of the more colorful and um, imaginative stories we find in Scripture. Uh, Just let your mind kind of wander with this scene as we read Luke's account. Luke, remember Dr. Luke, he was a scientist, he was a, a physician, he approached things very systematically in the way he records facts. Because that's what his science, that's what his healing business was all about. You know, he 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 was a just like imagine yourself in biology class with your lab notebook and how important it was for you to record, you know, the the observations of your experiments. Luke kind of records his gospel that way. He records the book of Acts that way for us. And it's interesting as we see his insight here in this great story in Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. And it came about one day that he, Jesus, was teaching. And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And Luke documents this. I would underline this statement. There's something powerful about it. It says that the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So this setting, they're they're gathered together and it was quite a gathering. Pharisees, rabbis, PhDs, doctors of the law, and they had come from all of the local community in Galilee. This takes place up in Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing village there where um, Peter was from, John was from. Um, We have been there. If you've been on our tour into Israel, you've been there yourself. You've walked. You've sat in the synagogue there. You've you've seen the home that is believed was Peter's, the remnant of the home, which now has a, a, a massive church that's built over it. And the church sits up on these legs above the house that they believe was Peter's, and then there's like an acrylic glass floor, and you can literally walk out onto this floor in the center of this sanctuary and look down at what they believe was the home of Peter. I kind of wonder if this wasn't even maybe Peter's home that this meeting takes place in. I don't know. But boy, I bet he was mad if they ripped his roof off. (laughs) So they're gathered there, so they've come from all over. They, they have come from afar, from all over. The reputation of what Christ has been doing has drawn them there. And this is the first time in the story that we read about Pharisees. We may have many different thoughts about Pharisees, but I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. The word itself means divided, to divide. They, the Pharisees were, were there for the purpose of dividing truth from inerrancy, the the law from any inerrancy that would be blasphemous to the law. That was their intent. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they were there for pure motives. And the truth is that many Pharisees and, and the whole tradition of the Pharisees had become such that in trying to keep the law, trying to separate it from unholiness or blasphemy, they had put into the law more requirements than God ever intended. And, and in doing so, had really burdened the people of God, burdened those that were serious about worshiping God, about following Him, and they had 
burdened them to the point where they were really oppressed by keeping of all these rules beyond what God had intended. And Christ came to set us free from that. To set us free from the legality, the the law, and, and to put us into relationship with our Creator. And that's so significant in His ministry. But they're there. They're from all over, including, including Jerusalem, which was the, the seat of authority. They had come from afar, moved to the north there, into the Sea of Galilee, the region there. And it says that they're seated. They're seated, and that's significant because we're going to see that this room is filled to capacity, standing room only, and being seated means that they were given a place of authority, of respect. I'm sure Christ made it clear. Listen, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the keepers of the law that are coming, you need to give them a place to sit. They deserve the respect of their office. Teachers would have sat. Christ would have been sitting in this room teaching, and then others would have. That was the place of, of authority was, and respect was seated. And others would have pressed in around. We we get the scene not only from Luke chapter 5, but in Mark chapter 2, there's another account of this. And it's quite clear that this was a packed house in every capacity. And behold, verse 18, some men, Mark tells us four men, were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed or a man with palsy. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, in front of Jesus. They wanted to bring their friend, this paralyzed man, in and put him in the presence of Jesus because they believed that Jesus could heal his paralysis, could restore his vitality. In verse 19, and not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center in front of Jesus. Now, Mark tells us that they went up on the roof because of the crowd. They removed the roof, Mark says, and they dug an opening. (laughs) So I don't know if this was, I don't know if this was a, you know, some type of a, a wood and then thatch and, and mud and then, and then clay tiles to shed rain, but they disassembled this roof, dug an opening, Mark says, and then lowered him in to the midst of them. We did not cover this in our ushers meeting. But you can imagine, even just a few minutes ago, as there was a moment of quietness, you could hear the wind rustling on the roof. We've sat in here in thunderstorms and, and had to speak louder because of the noise on the roof. These guys aren't up on the roof without knowing that they're up on the roof. Something's going on on the roof. Now Luke doesn't document how it was responded to in that process. He just gets to the end result. They ripped a hole in the roof and they lowered them down. And I can imagine the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these doctors of the law, sitting there in their place of, of respect and authority and honor 
And I don't know how you can rip a hole in a roof like that, especially when Mark says they're digging a hole without a lot of stuff coming into the audience and there's no room. Who's ever there is getting covered with this stuff. And I can imagine these guys just kind of like trying to keep their dignity as whatever's going on in the roof. But Jesus controls the room. I noticed Pastor Bob, when he's teaching, there's nothing that goes on in this room that he doesn't observe. Me, you could be overhauling an engine in the back of the room and I wouldn't know. I observe people, I recognize faces. It's amazing how many times somebody will say, have you seen so-and-so? And I'll say, yeah, I saw them when I was teaching. They were in the second service on the right-hand side about halfway back. I see a lot of faces, but you could be working back there. You could be doing your home. I wouldn't know. I just know that you're there and I appreciate it. Bob, on the other hand, recognizes everything that's going on and processes it all. So don't be pulling any fast ones when he's up here. And I believe, obviously, Jesus would, of anybody, would have the ability to perceive what's going on in the room. The activity on the roof is not happening without him being in tune with it. And certainly he could be aggravated by it. But I think we get some really cool insight into the person of Jesus Christ by his response. The very first word he says to this interruption is friend. (laughs) It's mind boggling. Friend. The thing that moved Jesus was the faith of the friends that brought him. Look at that verse 20. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. I can't imagine any other teacher in that room, any one of those Pharisees could have certainly taken the teaching role. Any of those doctors of the Bible, of the law, could have taken that teaching role. I can't imagine anyone in that setting having that response other than the man God, Jesus Christ, friend. Seeing their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now I'm wondering what the response is to the men that are lowering him down. You know, there's, I don't know if if they each had a corner, you know, and they're lowering him down through the roof through some type of a, like a cloth blanket or something, if they tied ropes on it. We don't have that much detail. I don't know if there's one guy in the hole lowering him down and then three other guys behind him, you know, holding on to the rope. And the guys behind them may be saying, what's going on? What's he doing? And the guy that's looking down in the hole says, he just forgived his sins. And the guys in the back are holding on for all their life. Doesn't he know he's paralyzed? We didn't come here for forgiveness of sins. We want him healed. But Jesus knew that that really was the issue. And as compassionate as Christ is, certainly He's in the healing business. 
He's in the compassion business. He's in the miracle business. But make no mistake, all of that is for one purpose and one purpose only. To establish who He is. God incarnate. God in flesh. The Creator of the universe come to earth in the person of a man. He's there to turn everything upside down. The purpose of this miracle is simply to establish in front of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, from Galilee, from Judea, all the way down to Jerusalem, anyone who would gather, make no mistake about it, that God is on earth and he's about to change the system upside down. This passage ends in verse 26. We'll read through the whole thing, but jump down to 26 and look at the last sentence there in verse 26. It says, we have seen, the word is in, this is the New American Standard, remarkable things today. That passage, that that word remarkable is is where we get the word in the Greek, if you translate it down, is is a place where we get the word paradoxal things Remarkable, paradoxal things, things that don't make sense, things that are contrary to the way we normally think. We have seen things today that turn the way we think upside down, is what Luke was saying. He was quoting those that left. That was their thought. This has been remarkable. This has been beyond our comprehension. It changes the way we have to think about things. Jumping back up to verse 21 there, Jesus has forgiven this man's sins. And the Pharisees and the scribes began to reason, saying, this this reasoning means they're thinking in themselves. They're thinking, their, their thoughts are. They're not speaking this out loud. They're reasoning in their minds. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is what they're going through their mind. And Jesus, another miracle of the day, is aware of their reasoning. We see this on several occasions when he interacts with crowds and performs miracles. This happened when he forgave the the woman caught in adultery. And they were standing in a circle around her. And he perceived their thoughts. And then it says that he wrote in the dirt there, and the Scripture says that they heard His voice as He wrote in the dirt. So this is something supernatural that's going on here. He perceives their thoughts. He knows that they consider Him now to be a blasphemer blasphemer, because nobody can forgive sins except God Himself. And to put yourself equal to God is blasphemy, the keepers of the law. It was punishable by stoning to death. But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, they're asking the question in their mind, and now He speaks the answer. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, the guys up on the roof holding this guy, lowering him down, they know what's easier. It's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven. That's not what they came for. They wanted him to rise and walk. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. 
There's no evidence of it. There's no proof of it. Let the guy get up and walk, and then that demonstrates power. Jesus says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you may know that what I said was not just uh, words, but in fact have power behind them, He turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Verse 26 says, they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. As I look at this amazing story, one that we've heard, you know, if we've been in the church growing up, that you've heard this how many times in Sunday school, you've seen it illustrated. There's beautiful art throughout history that commemorates this event. Very creative ways. The one phrase that really arrests me as I read this is that phrase all the way back there in verse 20 where it says, and seeing their faith. Jesus was so moved by the faith of these friends. So I wanted to look at the faith of friends. I want to look at this story and just pick out five things that we can glean from it and how we can approach our faith towards our friends who are yet to know Christ as their Savior. We can apply it personally in our relationships with the lost. We can apply it corporately as a church. But five things that I think we can learn from this passage. Number one is ingenuity. Ingenuity, creativity. I love the ingenuity of this four group of guys. As much detail as Luke gives us and Mark gives us, we still don't even know how they got up on the roof. Some scholars will try to justify it saying, well, in these homes, you know, there was a, an inner courtyard and in the inner courtyard there was a stairway that you could get up to the roof. Yeah, but the house is packed. They couldn't get in that far to get to an inner, inner stairway. In my opinion, the house is standing room only. They can't even get to the door. Some have said, well, there are some of these houses had outdoor stairways. I was there. I've never seen an outdoor stairway. And the other people that, that argue against that say, listen, outdoor stairways just make the house vulnerable to robbers and thieves that would want to get in. You know, the house was secure. That's why there were inner courtyards, so you could shut a door and have like an inner area that was safe from intruders. So I don't know if they threw the guy up on the roof. I don't know if they wrapped him in the blanket and drug him up on the roof. I don't know if they gathered some more people from the street and built one of those pyramids that you do in, as kids and, and climbed up onto the roof. I don't know, but they got him up on the roof. I 
My dad was an amazing inspiration to me as an ingenious man, one of the most ingenious men I've ever known. The thing that I loved about the way my dad approached problems in life and life in general is that there's not an obstacle that you can run into that you can't engineer and think your way around or over or through. And I saw him do it many times. Be working on something, on a car, and something would break and, and you know, I would be ready to quit. And he'd say, nah, I think we can make a tool to fix that. And he'd go into his shop and make a tool to fix it. It's a guy at church here that worked a whole career at Pico. And in his retirement, he drives a school bus. And also during the summer, he comes in here during the week. And when nobody's around, he gets a bucket and he goes out in the lawn and he picks weeds in our gardens and stuff in between driving the bus. He's in prisons several nights a month teaching Bible study, and he had on his heart that he would do a Bible study for the bus drivers at work. And he started talking to people in authority, and now there's no way you can do that. We don't have a place for it. It's against the rules. He said, well, I have a bus. Just meet in the back of the bus. Now he's got a room in a school, and he's got about seven or eight guys coming out. I think of Pennsylvania United Medical Association. You might know it as Puma. It's our partners in Nepal, a land that is closed to proselytizing, closed to evangelism. The door was closed, but maybe we can get in through the roof. So Steve Simpson and some of his partners, they said, well, what if we, what if we just love on the people of Nepal through medical missions? Because the land's open to that. If you'll come and minister and bring doctors and nurses here to treat a population that doesn't have the privilege or even the capacity to have that kind of care, that's an open door. And Puma, in a type of Trojan horse, every year, team after team of doctors and nurses all fill with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is taking root there and churches are being planted and the explosion of Christianity is remarkable, not just through Puma, but through other organizations finding creative ways in similar fashion to get around a closed door, to get up on a roof. Number two, I think that what we can learn from here is the urgency of these friends. Why not wait? How long can he teach? We'll just park out here, and when he comes out, we'll try to get a couple minutes with him. Let's come back tomorrow. The Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear in 2 Corinthians 6 that today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. There's a balance here. Please hear me. God is sovereign we need to go home and lay down our, at night and, and put our head on the pillow and rest. Rest. Because the God of the universe is on the throne. But at the same time, 
There is an urgency to spiritual matters. We need to communicate that in our, in our love for those that are lost. We can't force people to a place they're not willing to go. But we should communicate urgency in the need to address the lostness, the sin in their lives. Along with those lines is number three, which is persistence. This means a great deal to me, personally. Because I can tell you, personally, that if it wasn't for persistence... I'd be a lost soul. If it wasn't for the persistence of a person who continually invited me to church, invited me to Bible studies, to home fellowships, to hang out in his circle of friends, who continued to confront me with my lostness, my sinfulness, confront me with the truth of the gospel and a love of Christ for me to save me from my sins. If it wasn't for His persistence, I would be lost today. So don't give up. Listen, there were times when I said, enough! Enough! Would you? Enough with the Jesus! (laughs) Have you been told that? I see some heads nodding. That's good. Good. Keep it up. And listen, honor that. Back off. Back off. Ease up. Pump the brakes. But don't give up. Try another way. Doors blocked. Go up on the roof. You know, if, 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 they, if, that wasn't, if that roof was impenetrable, I think we'd be reading Luke chapter 6. Jesus is teaching in Capernaum the next day. And amidst... The room, a tunnel, came up through the floor. In other words, these guys would have found a way in. We need to be persistent. We need to keep trying another way. Persistence saved my life. Number four is sacrifice. If you want to bring your friends to Christ, there's going to be a cost to pay. This guy lost a roof. <laughs> Again, I just, I just love to think that it was Peter's house. And man, I bet he was steamed. You know, those of you that home host small groups and Bible studies, maybe even especially those of you that host student ministry type events in your homes, you know the cost. Young life groups. You know that there's broken furniture and holes in the wall and cokes built on the carpets. There's a cost. There's a family in this church, Dave and Peggy Prox. Their parents, Dave's parents, really are responsible for bringing young life to Delaware County, to southeast Pennsylvania in essence. If it wasn't for his legacy, we wouldn't have our pastor Eric Segul here today. Dave's dad in Brookhaven built a house that he designed. He was a builder and he built a house specifically to house an assembly of young people. And at times, in its heyday, there was close to a hundred high school kids that would gather in that house. I'd be like, check please. 
They used to have to take all the furniture out of a room. He had a great room, but it still wasn't great enough. They would load up all the furniture, move it out of the room, and then after the event was over, they'd move it back in the room. To reach friends, it'll cost us time, it'll cost us energy, it'll cost us physical possessions, material things, it'll cost us some dollars. You may need to buy a ticket to get somebody to a retreat, buy a ticket to get them to a women's event, buy a ticket to get them to a concert. You might need to go get them and bring them to church and it'll cost you gas, it'll cost you dinner because you had to bribe them to come to church. It'll cost you. There's a cost. There's a sacrifice. It'll cost you time. There's a guy in the church that runs a construction company, and one of the things that he's done consistently over the years is he's taken on guys that are in the recovery process. In the name of Christ, he'll give them a job, help them get back up on their feet. There was one man in particular that he was working with who slipped back in his addiction while working for this gentleman. There's a cost to that. There's a reputation. Your reputation's on the line. Your customers are on the line. Your, your business is on the line. But still, this man wanted to help this guy in recovery, and, and he, he decided that the best thing he could do was bring him to the feet of Jesus. Called Pastor Ken Graves up in, in Bangor, Maine, and Ken runs a, a recovery program, a one-year recovery program that's very effective for those that are willing to humble themselves and sit at the feet of Christ. So this guy got in this truck and drove nine hours one way, almost 600 miles, dropped this gentleman off so that he wouldn't have opportunity to slip out the back at some bus stop or something, and then got back in his truck and drove nine hours home. There's a cost to bring somebody to the feet of Christ. Number five, and the last thing I think, and it's so important, this is where the corporate aspect comes together as us as a church, is teamwork. It took, Mark tells us, four friends to bring this man into the presence of Christ. And it almost always is a team effort when somebody comes to salvation. A series of events, interactions, encounters, each one, listen, each one just as important as the next. It's like a chain. Each link's connected in the chain. You can't take one link out and the chain be effective. Each and every link is every bit as critical. One plants, one waters, one harvest, Scripture says. Maybe you were the one that was the witness of the gospel. Maybe you were part of an intercessory team that consistently and faithfully prayed. Maybe you were the one that just demonstrated hospitality. Maybe you were the teacher at a small group where the gospel was clearly communicated creatively for the first time. I don't know who to give quote to this credit to this quote to, but it's really become important in my life, and it helps keep my pride in check. It goes like this. It's amazing what can be accomplished in the kingdom of God when no one is concerned with who gets the credit. It's amazing what can be accomplished in the kingdom of God 
when no one is concerned with who gets the credit. I don't need a name in a bulletin, up on a banner, up on a sign. I don't need it mentioned. Because each and every link is just as important as the next. These men worked together to bring their friend to Christ. And he said, seeing their faith, Luke says of Jesus, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. This healing of the paralytic man is the second healing that takes place in, the, in this chapter of Luke. The first one that we skipped over is, is a healing of a, of a leper. And it's interesting that these two sins, these two diseases rather, these two physical manifestations represent, in both cases, as Luke describes, sin in a person's life. And Jesus here the first thing he does is is forgive this man's sins. Now, does Christ perceive that his palsy is caused as a result of sin? It's possible. There were many sinful acts that could lead to a type of palsy. There was venereal diseases that could manifest themselves and eventually lead to types of palsy and paralysis and tremors in their extreme. I don't know what the situation, but it's interesting that That leprosy that's healed earlier, leprosy represents how sin corrupts and decays us. And then here, the palsy, the paralysis, it represents the bondage that sin puts us in, how it paralyzes us as spiritual beings, as human beings. Jesus came to forgive sin and to restore corruption to redeem what sin had corroded out of lives. He came to forgive sins that it would set those in bondage free from their paralysis. And in that room, in that small town, on the shores of that beautiful lake they call Galilee, there was two groups of people sitting by. There were those that were just doing that, sitting by. Sitting by. Maybe there for the show, because there was a crowd. Many were there to skeptically examine every single word that was spoken and looking for faults. And then there was a whole other group ultimately manifested in these four individuals who would do anything to draw near and to bring their friends into the presence of the one who could forgive their sins and restore their lives. Father, this morning we come before you and we ask, Lord, that you, Father, would do what only you can do here. Lord, that your spirit right now would move powerfully among those that are gathered. Lord, those whose sin has corrupted them, 